Welcome to the SCC English podcast number 19. This is Julian Gerdham from the English Department in St. Columba's College in Dublin in Ireland speaking to you. You can check out more on our blog sccenglish.ie. This is the second podcast which examines the play King Lear in the lead up to the leaving certificate. The first looked at the very first scene of the play. Others will consider themes and characters and there will also be a quotation self-test. But this second podcast deals with the bleakness of Shakespeare's vision in his play and his treatment of the idea of divine justice. A friend of mine says he will never again go to another production of King Lear in his life. Now he's not bored or confused by the play, but he just can't bear its utter bleakness. Famously, the version of Lear we see was altered in 1681 by the playwright Nahum Tate and given a happy ending in which Cordelia and Edgar, yes, honestly, were married and lived happily ever after. A retired Lear did not die, but potted around contentedly with Kent and Albany, and all four main characters, Regan, Goneril, Edmund and Cornwall, who were bad, were handily bumped off. This version dominated the English stage until the early decades of the 19th century. But Shakespeare's King Lear which in the words of Kent late on is cheerless, dark and deadly, became an appropriate story for the very dark 20th century. My talk today examines Shakespeare's vision through the idea of religion, of God or the gods, the divine, and thus helps you consider the key issue in this play, its tragic nature. Nahum Tate's rewritten, massacred version was almost a comedy, but at the end of Shakespeare's story, there is little other than unmediated darkness. The purpose of religion in a society is supposedly to support human beings, to be both a guide and a comfort. And Shakespeare was writing in a time in England of absolute Christian belief. He was writing an historical play about pagan times, though Christian ideas, particularly of suffering and redemption, keep breaking through. The gods are often invoked in King Lear, on the surface, it seems to be a highly religious society. But in fact, there is no stage in the play when heaven seems to be active or effective. This play disabuses us of the idea that there is any benevolent power up in the skies which will protect us from ourselves. The play tells human beings, you're on your own and don't expect any help from above. In the words of the critic Stephen Greenblatt, quote, the characters appeal again and again to the pagan gods, but the gods are utterly silent. Nothing answers to human questions but human voices. There are characters who know this, and they're the ones who are most clear-sighted, such as Kent, Edmund and the Fool. And then there are those who have to learn it, who are blind or who fool themselves. Edmund knows himself very well, and he knows that his destiny is solely in his own hands, in his opening soliloquy, in Act 1, Scene 2, he states, Thou, nature, art my goddess. To thy law my services are bound. In a key moment for the audience and for students of the play, he responds to his father's foolish dependence on the stars, these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us, with this statement. This is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeits of our own behaviour, we make guilty of our disasters the sun, the moon and stars, 
as if all that we were evil on was by a divine thrusting on. In other words, he believes in innate badness. The gods have nothing to do with it. You look after yourself. No one else will do so. A very different character, the fool, also knows this. He states it repeatedly, especially to King Lear. In Act 1, Scene 5, he says that I can tell why a snail has a house. And when asked why by Lear, answers to put his head in, not to give it away to his daughters and leave his horns without a case. And of course Kent is absolutely open-eyed about all human behaviour. And his determination to follow Lear in disguise, at great risk to himself, shows that he knows Lear will need such help. It's not going to come from anything like natural or divine justice. Other figures are blind to this and have an unfounded trust in the gods. In Act 1, Scene 4, Lear calls on the divine in his arrogancy, in his arrogance rather, as though it should serve his own individual will. After arguing with Goneril, he cries out, Here, nature, here, dear goddess, here, into her womb convey sterility. And in Act 2, Scene 4, when he doesn't get his own way, he shouts, All the stored vengeances of heaven fall on her ingrateful top. But then he does start to realise the heavens will not help him or answer his call. Heavens, if you do love old men, if your sweet sway allow disobedience, if you yourselves are old, make it your cause, send down and take my part. Note that word if repeated three times. If you do love old men, if your sweet sway, if you yourselves are old. Of course, they don't actually come down and take his part. And then there is the crucial, O reason not the need speech, in which he says, You see me here, you gods, a poor old man. This play is gradually going to tell him and us that the gods don't see anything, or if they do, they're not particularly interested. Goneril's brutal statement of reality is, "'Tis his own blame, hath put himself from rest, and must needs taste his own folly." And this is echoed by her sister Regan. To willful men, the injuries that they themselves procure must be their schoolmasters. By the storm scene, Act 3, Scene 2, Lear is far less confident in divine intervention. Let the great gods that keep this dreadful pudder over our heads find out their enemies now. It's a plea. And he says, take physic pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayest shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. Again, he's pleading rather than stating, demanding or expecting. When mad, he realises that this world is a great stage of fools. The gentleman says that Cordelia is the one daughter who redeems nature from the general curse which twain have brought her to. And when Lear thinks Cordelia is still alive, he says, If it be so, it is a chance which does redeem all sorrows that ever I have felt. When she returns and sees him asleep, she asks the kind gods to cure this great breach in his abused nature. By the end, Lear does not care about the world, 
and is happy to be in prison with her. It will be a kind of heaven for him. Of course, he is denied this in the end. Shakespeare's version of the Lear story is the only one in which Cordelia dies. Shakespeare has plainly gone out of his way to subject his central character, perhaps the audience, to the worst tragedy imaginable. And essentially decent men, such as Edgar, Gloucester and Albany, are also misguided. Albany's rock-solid faith in the gods is repeatedly undermined by the events of the play. He refers in Act 1, Scene 4 to gods that we adore. When he hears that Cornwall is dead, he states that this shows that you are above, you justices, that these are nether crimes so speedily can venge. But how can these justicers venge the death of Cordelia later? And was the death of Cornwall not just the act of one outraged, decent, ordinary soldier rather than the gods? When the officer is sent in the final scene to save Cordelia, Albany famously exclaims, The gods defend her. One line later, Lear comes in, staggering under the weight of the body of his darling dead daughter. Nice timing, Albany. The whole movement of the second half of the play seems to be Christian, as Lear learns from his errors through pain and is reconciled with Cordelia. But then, of course, Shakespeare destroys the consolation which he had led the audience to expect. Another seriously big fan of the gods is Gloucester. He is still calling the gods kind just before his eyes are plucked out and then calls to them as the first eye is on its way to the dustbin. O cruel, O you gods. But then he does learn in the most brutal way imaginable. All's dark and comfortless. Following this, he speaks what might be the definitive statement on this matter in the whole play. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Before long, talking to poor Tom, he says, Heavens do so still, that the superfluous and lust-dieted man, that slaves our ordinance, that will not see because he does not feel, feel your power quickly. And on the so-called cliff states, O you mighty gods, this world I do renounce, and in your sights shake patiently my great affliction off. There's a notable lack of response from the gods at this point. They're plainly on their afternoon tea break. Edgar helps him regain his faith. Thou, happy father, think that the clearest gods who make them honours of men's impossibilities have preserved thee. This may be a necessary deception of an old blind man, but it wasn't the gods who preserved Gloucester. The last word goes to Kent. It's impossible to argue with his statement that all's cheerless, dark and deadly. This play of often appalling suffering and pain ends with the horror of Cordelia's death, as Paul Cheatham writes, quote, Whereas at least some of those who suffer, notably Lear and Gloucester, have sins to expiate and lessons to learn, it is difficult to see Cordelia as anything other than an innocent victim of sheer vindictiveness. End quote. It is this meaningless event, unmitigated by the consolation of religious comfort, that makes King Lear all too modern a play.